Welcome, everybody, to the Macro View. This is Andrew Smith. I'm coming to you live from downtown Los Angeles. Um, tonight, I decided to host a little pop-up episode. Uh, reason being was that uh, I was reading reports that tonight that uh, kind of just was a little bit thought-provoking. Uh, and uh, I think that you'll see why if you pay attention to the slideshow or if you follow us on Twitter at the Macro View. Um, you'll be able to uh, get get a hold of those slides of the pictures that uh, that we're we're going to be walking through. And basically, what this report was showing was the overwhelming burden that the, the, the uh, regu- regulatory landscape currently has on businesses and on society in general. And uh, you know, we we often look at the regulatory agency budget, but we forget to factor in. What those regulatory agency, uh, you know, the costs that they imp- impose on businesses, and that's what this report from uh, it's, it's called Ten Thousand Commandments. Um, it's from uh, the the uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute, and just talks about the number of regulations, how regulations have grown, and what the costs on the economy of those regulations actually are. It's quite daunting. If you uh, to, to to kind of get right into it, I, I scheduled a lot longer on the show than uh, where what I'm probably going to go. But the reason for that is I, I don't want to you know go over the amount and get cut off short. But if you actually go and look at the uh, the the cost on the economy of these uh, of these regulations, uh, it's, it's daunting. It's it's actually more than the total tax revenue. It's more than the total tax revenue collected from uh, from the income tax, and it's it's pretty damn close. It might actually be more. I think it is a little bit more than the combination of uh, personal income taxes and corporate taxes combined. Um, if you go to uh, if you look at uh, where it highlights that, I'll, I'll go to the exact slide number. I believe that there's 13 slides, um, and it is. Slide number 11, and uh, the, the title of this figure three, regulatory compliance compared with individual income tax, corporate income taxes, and corporate pre-tax profits. And it's quite close to corporate pre-tax profits, um, almost 100% of corporate pre-tax profits, over 75%. That's a lot. That's a huge burden. Um, you know, on businesses, and then you know, eventually on consumers and on on employees, uh, which feel the brunt of that cost. Uh, and you know, how do we get here? How do we get here? And one of one of the things that I believe, one of the reasons that I believe we have gotten here, is that um, you know, we, we started to adopt the system of of having a significant amount of of unintentional government ownership and liabilities tied uh, to a lot of companies in industries and, you know, major status quo industries. And, you know, having that exist is inherently going to be anti-disruption. Disruption means that companies that are the status quo are going to go bankrupt. The people that own those are going to lose money. If they don't go bankrupt, they're going to at least struggle in the meantime, uh, have to figure out how to compete and, and how to come up with a plan so they can continue to compete with the, you know, the new companies and the new industries that are coming and disrupting their existing market share and stealing their existing market share. 
and you know one of the best examples of this, and I've touched on this in shows before, is the utility industry. You know, and you have the government talking a big, big game about clean energy. Yeah, we really want clean energy. We're going to aim for this much clean energy. But what are they going to do about the utility companies? I mean, basically, in order to get clean energy, what you have to do is you have to either A, have utility companies totally reconstruct uh, their business model from, you know, the, the way that they, they acquire the base, uh, you know, the base materials that they need to produce to, to generate the energy, the material base materials that go into generating the energy. If you're going to solar, you know, it's a completely different model from what we currently have. And it's going to take a ton of investment for those utility companies to do that. So we're either talking about 50, 60 years from now, or we're talking about new companies that don't have existing business models coming in trying to steal the market share away from those utility companies and delivering electricity in a cleaner and more efficient manner. Well, guess what? Those utility companies are going to hurt because of it. And currently, not only are utilities heavily subsidized, but they're so heavily subsidized that bar and corporate scandal, they're likely not ever going to go out of business. And, you know, bar and corporate scandal, they're just, they're not going bankrupt. They're considered, you know, by people in the investment profession, like myself, they're considered the safest equity sector. You know, at times they become overvalued as well. And of course there's risk in everything, but they're considered extremely safe. The reason that they're considered extremely safe is because, Governments aren't going to allow their local electricity provider to go bankrupt or their local gas provider to go bankrupt. They're going to subsidize them. They're going to tax people if they have to, tax wealthier people and be able to, to be able to subsidize the uh, losses of these utility companies. And as long as you have that going on, and as long as you also have major you know, local municipal liabilities that are a result of not only those subsidies, but also their pension funds owning significant stakes in these utility companies, whether it's directly through purchases of the, the, the stock in their own portfolios or through investing in investment managers who then go and purchase the stock of these utility companies. This exists. This exists in, in you know, a rampant fashion. Um, I'd say probably at least, if not a little bit overweight compared to the S&P 500, you know, you, 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 you're going to have pension funds holding uh, as part of their equity portfolio, uh, you know, at least equal to, if not a little bit larger than uh, the, the uh, sector allocation that the S&P 500 has to utilities. And I'd say that at least over the last three to five years, it's been overweight. So do we want clean energy or do we want to have really, really stable uh profit-producing and dividend-yielding utility companies that have very, very low electricity costs and burn a, a large amount of fossil fuels. Which do we want? Which do we want? Do we want competition, or do we want government saying and picking and choosing who's, who's a winner and who's a loser? And when it comes to the, the clean energy sector, it's absolutely no better, because now those clean energy companies have reason to go to government and say, look, we need the subsidies to be able to compete with the regional monopoly utility companies that are already getting the subsidies. So you got to give them both money now. And on top of that, they got to all compete with the oil companies, which get, uh, you know, exploration and production, 
uh, subsidies and they get all sorts of tax benefits that lower their cost of capital. So then the clean energy companies go to government and say, hey, we want these tax benefits for people who invest in our companies because we're offering clean energy that's going to help curb climate change. So you just have this giant financial entanglement of government liabilities and private industries. And that, that's going to be part of the reason why you have regulation, not only to the extent that you have them, but the, the way that they're written that so blatantly is anti-competition. It's just blatantly anti-competition. It's set up purposely, purposely to make the big bigger, the rich richer, the politically connected more powerful, and allow them to build, you know, larger and larger captures of the market share and get to the point where you have, you know, 5, 10, 15 companies that control, uh, you know, 90 to 95% of any given industry's market share. Uh, that's called oligopoly. Uh, it might be a little bit smaller than the three or four that you have in some other countries that uh, have much more developed oligopolies because it's built into their nature and they have market systems just for the fact of keeping peace because it ends up deli- it still ends up even under that system delivering better than just pure national ownership of it, uh, which a lot of the countries that have moved to a system like China and Russia of oligopoly realized because they tried the other version. They still want a lot of control, but what, 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 you know, what they don't want is, uh, is, is people starving. There are people starving and, and the market system while having some of their politically connected cronies be owners and, and uh, excuse me, uh, be able to, you know, generate a profit off of it. But at the same time, the state still own a lot. They have a lot of input into what gets done. And what... Now in America, you have all of these entangled interests as well. And, and we're headed down that path. It's becoming harder and harder to compete. And one of, one of the, the clear sides of it is just the pure regulatory cost. And, you know, people, they're out there looking for a job wondering, hey, why aren't there any jobs right now? I remember America used to be so great. It used to be so dynamic. You know, we went from an agriculture to an industrial, uh, you know, to a hyper-industrial, to a technology-based uh, country, and we, we didn't have what we're having now. So I think a lot of people are blaming it, misguidedly blaming it on free trade. Uh, it really has nothing to do with free trade. It has to do with all these regulations. Um, all of these regulations and all these regulations cost businesses money, makes it harder for them to employ people, and it makes it harder for them to give people raises, makes it harder for them to, to clip the profit. But you saw it. Companies would have almost double the profit. And if they're doubling their profit today and they're not paying employees better and they're not doing, you know, and, and, and they're not trying to invest in the future. Then what you're going to have is you're going to have competitive businesses that can come in and offer the same or a better service at a lower price. And they're going to clip a profit and they're going to steal away market share. And they're going to take lower margins and try to do higher volume. That's how competition works. That's how competition works. You see, the, anti, the, the, the problem is you don't have a lot of competition because you have regulatory bureaucracies, which are anti-competition, you know, whether it's unintended or intended, it, the regulations that exist make it harder for companies to enter markets and compete with the existing companies that have already overcome those barriers. It makes it harder for, for them to compete. So they are anti-competition 
and the primary regulator of companies from whether it's from an, looking for jobs and getting the best wage and having, you know, having a competitive wage that you can live on and having options for employment so that that exists, whether it's being able to buy the best product at the lowest price, being able to get the best service delivered at the lowest price, whether it's being able to, whatever it is in life that you enjoy, whether it's being able to travel at the best price or travel at the lowest price and have the greatest experience, no matter what it is, you benefit from competition because it, it, it increases the standards and it regulates the competition. It regulates the peers in the same industry and in the same sector. Companies that do it best have the best have, bring in the most consumers. They're even able to potentially charge a little bit more because people become loyal to their brand and they're able to increase their profit margins. So companies that do good Companies that do well to their communities, to their employees, to their consumers, guess what? Their bottom lines do really well as well. And most executives and most boards of directors understand this. But the main thing holding them back is that they've got 75% of what they profit before taxes going to regulatory compliance. That's a huge amount of money. They would, and if they had just a little bit of certainty – that that would be 50% of what it is today. They'd be able to put capital to work. They'd be able to give their employees raises. They'd be able to hire new employees. They'd be able to invest in the future. And if they didn't do that, there'd be capital available because the, a the barrier to entry would be lower, and b it'd be a lot you know b it'd be a lot easier to invest as part of this reduction in the regulatory cost because that's a big part of it. Is it's really really hard to invest, and that's going to be. Uh, you know, what we're going to get to on the show in the next, you know, 15 minute segment, we're probably going to go over just a little bit on that 30 minutes, but stick with us here. But that's what we're going to go over. We're going to talk about why it's hard to access capital. And a lot of that has to do with the regulatory environment as well. Um, now, what I want to do is I want to go to page, uh, let me count the slide, one, two, three, four, slide number four that I have. Um, and it would be on the first tweet that I sent out. So it'd be a little bit down, further down my, my, uh, uh, Twitter feed, um, you know, if you follow us on Twitter and you want to see which which uh, slide, you're not not able to listen in on uh, Blog Talk Radio and follow the slideshow. But slide number four shows uh, the annual cost of federal regulation and intervention, and it's broken down by federal agency. That's a really interesting chart. If you look at it, just tax compliance alone, $316 billion. And that's it, when it says tax compliance. Not talking about the taxes paid. It's not talking about taxes paid. It's talking about tax compliance. It's talking about how much it costs businesses to comply with the tax code, to have accountants, to have bookkeepers, to keep their records, to be able to deal with an audit if it comes about, uh, you know, to be able to do payrolls. And this probably, I'm guessing this, this is on just a federal level. There's also state tax compliance. So just tax compliance alone, just simplifying the tax code, you know, that you're, you're talking about close to one and a half percent of GDP, maybe a little bit more than one and a half percent of GDP. That's a lot. That's a lot of money that businesses could be saving, that they could be investing and putting to work, they could be using to hire people or raise people's wages. That is good for the economy if that capital stays at, you know, in businesses' bank accounts. They're going to use it. If they don't, 
guess what? The CEO is going to get fired and the board's going to hire somebody that will. Or if they sit on a bunch of cash and don't know what to do with it, shareholders are going to demand dividends and they're going to go and spend the money or reinvest that money. That's how this thing works. That's how this system works. It, it, it is a system naturally where accountability exists so long as there's competition. So long as there's competition. Now, the, the number one barrier to competition existing and holding the whole market accountable and being able to get to a, a, a system where you don't see 300 to 1 CEO to average employee salaries. You may see 15 to 1, 10 to 1 if it's a really damn good CEO. But above and beyond that, it would just be considered unseemly even by the shareholders. And, you know, maybe you'll see some, some uh, you know, golden parachutes because, yeah, if you get fired from a Fortune 500 company, you're probably not going to be able to get another job. Um, you know, you're probably still going to see a lot of stock option plans because you want to align incentives. If you're shareholders and you're hiring a CEO, you want to align incentives for the CEO to think long-term. And it should maybe be a long-term options package, but to think long-term and to try to raise value of the company, try to raise the value of the, the uh, equity in the company. If you're a shareholder, that's what you want to do. If you're an owner of the company, you want the company's value to be higher. And you want your CEO's incentives to be aligned with that. Number one, prevention to uh, additional competition, which would regulate the whole damn market by itself, is regulation itself. Isn't that ironic? Regulatory bureaucracies get in the way of competition, which is the ultimate regulatory force. It's the ultimate force for stealing away employees if you're not treating them right, for stealing away consumers if you're charging them too much or giving them too inferior of a product, for building brand loyalty by giving back to the community. It's the number one mechanism for doing that. Competition holds peers accountable. That's what it does. Regulatory agencies prevent competition, and in so much, they make it more difficult to regulate the markets. Isn't it strange? You have 3,000 pages of regulation plus, yeah, 3,000 plus pages of regulation come out under Dodd-Frank, but yet the, the too big to fail banks have just gotten bigger. And now the new normal is too small to survive. Community banks are going uh, by the wayside, they're going bankrupt all the time. They're being shut down by the FDIC. They're being, you know, they're being, uh, you know, swallowed up by the other, uh, the, by the big banks. And the big banks are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And yeah, you got a living will provision so that they can wind down accordingly, and the Fed and the FDIC can kind of match their resources together to make sure that depositors get paid back. You don't have runs on the bank and all of that. But is anybody kidding themselves if they think that it fixed too big to fail? You think that the banks aren't going to go to Congress again? The Treasury secretaries are going to come and say, oh, the Dow closed down 1,000 points. And, you know, they'll have massive losses amongst pension funds and 401ks. And people will be wondering how they're going to survive through retirement. And am I going to have to work till 80? And um, because of a lot of entanglement issues, that's potentially true. Um, is, it, is it a reason to use taxpayer dollars to bail out, you know, financial institutions? Absolutely not. Uh, but they'll, you know, they, they will go and strike fear into Congress, and Congress will in turn strike fear into the American populace. That's what happens. That's how this game works. And the more regulatory bureaucracies you have, and the more jobs that exist in those regulatory bureaucracies, 
and the more power they have to find the big companies and the more the big companies bend over and take the fines and write the checks, the more and more they're going to be able to send their experts to Congress. Congress is going to give loose guidance to these regulatory bureaucracies and tell them to write new rules, and they're going to work with the biggest of the big, the most powerful of the most powerful. Bureaucracies do not go to a five-man shop that started a couple of years ago and is trying to struggle, struggling to survive and compete with the big boys to figure out how to regulate something. They go to the biggest of the big. They go to the most, quote-unquote, merited experts that are available. They want to bring in the highest of the highest, the most merited, the people who have the highest title at the biggest firm that have done the most things, that have written, you know, written the books, that have gotten their doctorate degree. They want those experts. And guess what? Those experts are taught to love those organizations because those organizations, they work for each other. They work for each other. It's just the way it works. You're not going to get around it because this is human nature. These companies, they're all, you know, they got, you know, they got, you know, an SEC person in their office all the time. If they're a financial institution, if you're an energy company, you got the EPA in, in your office all the time. If you're, uh, you know, a big farming bureau, uh, corporation, you got the Department of Agriculture in your office all the time. You know, they build relationships. It's easier for them to get by with it. And guess what? They're, they're cash cow. They just settle. They just write, oh, yeah, we screwed up. Here's a check, uh, you know, till next time. And they send them off on their way. And, and, and later on, uh, you know, some little guy gets investigated can't afford the half a million dollar fine for, you know, misplacing, an, you know, a, a, a bank statement for one month from six or seven years ago. And I'm just making some shit up. But for any little ridiculous regulation that costs a ton of money at the end of the day through a fine of some sort. Now, what's the result of all these? I mean, what, what can we observe? What can we observe uh, that we can say that's a result of it? Well, I think the, the jobs picture, um, you know, I think manufacturing was in a lot of ways regulated out of America. Um, I think that, that in a lot of ways, you're, you're never going to get those jobs back because automation uh, in factories is already bringing a lot of these factories back. The jobs are not necessarily coming with them. You don't need as many employees on a factory line. And that's okay. There's a lot of other things that people can do. But the, the, you know, another very obvious sign that you can see is you know, how many startups do you have that are not in very low-regulation industries? It, you, they're, they're, you know, growing to become big. Technology, and by technology, I'm not saying high-tech and, and, you know, risky-type technologies uh, where you're going to be plugging into, you know, individual home infrastructure and you're going to be digging pipes and stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about mobile apps. And then the other one is food service. You know, you've had a number of big high-profile food service. You've had a number of website companies, you know, maybe they've got really cool, uh, like Alibaba not too too long ago, but um, you've got a number of those. And then you've got, uh, you know, the mobile app world and then you have basically the food service industry i mean you don't hear about a lot of big name great story ipos in very many other industries 
And that's not just because those industries are not that profitable and not that competitive and it costs a lot to get in. A big reason for that, a big reason for that is the regulatory environment. The second big reason for that is access to capital. And uh, what, what I'm going to do, because I'm going to need a little bit of a break, is uh, I'm going to uh, leave you all with a, a little 60-second uh, video. Um, uh, it's actually going to play, play through all four of them. So this is from our last episode. Um, you know, and the last episode that we talked about guaranteed basic income, and you know, go back and check it out. It's episode three. Uh, it's about an hour-long episode, and we went over these four little one-minute clips. And you know, just to give myself a little bit of a break, because I've been talking for uh, close to 30 minutes here, and it's kind of a um, off the uh, off the run episode. You know, wasn't really terribly prepared for, it, but I, I think it's a, it was an important episode. And after reading this article. Uh, you know, where you see some of the costs of these regulations, these hidden costs of regulations uh, that amount to be a little bit over $15,000 per person and, you know, cost businesses with under 50 employees over $11,000 per employee uh, to comply with. Uh, it's, it's daunting. And uh, it's, it's a big reason why not only is it hard to start a business and, and you're not seeing a lot of businesses, you know, coming into existence, um, and we're going to talk in episode four. We're going to go deep into the access to capital issue. We're going to give you a little bit of a teaser of it tonight. Um, but we're going to go deep into the access to capital issue. We're going to go uh, a, a lot deeper into this financial entanglement issue, um, and and uh, you know why it is even even deeper of a uh, you know game of trying to prevent the little guy and prevent you know, small business from disrupting existing status quo industries with brand new uh, business models that, if known about, consumers may really enjoy. Um, but I want to leave you with this little, you know, four one-minute uh, audio clips and, you know, get, get some of your thoughts provoked and maybe you'll want to go back and listen to my last episode as well about guaranteed basic income. And then I'm going to come back and what we're going to do is give you a little bit of a teaser probably go about five to seven minutes and talk a little bit about access to capital and give you a preview of what we're going to be talking about, um, you know, next episode. And uh, we're probably going to point to and relate it back to the, the regulatory framework, since that was what this popular pop-up episode was, was about. Um, we're going to, you know, kind of go back and, and, and potentially uh, tie it back to some of the financial entanglement, but probably not that, that much. Um, but the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to tie it to the tax issue and the tax compliance issue um and we're definitely going to tie it to the regulatory issue and we're going to tie it to uh just why there's generally overall risk uh that investors want to try to avoid uh with small businesses and whether or not some of that risk is potentially a little bit overblown quite frankly um and i'll give you a little bit of a teaser of that and and, and look at one of the charts and i'll kind of highlight it and the, the, the slideshow for, for Saturday's episode, which is episode four, uh, the slideshow is already up on that episode's page. So if you want to get a little bit of a head start, take a look at some of those slides. I'll, uh, I'll let you know which slide it is I'm looking at when we talk about it. So the first audio clip we're going to listen to here, remember, this is from uh, last episode. Uh, it's from last episode we where we talked about the guaranteed basic income. This is four audio clips that are uh, from Charles Murray, who is a uh, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute um, and talking about the uh, guaranteed basic income as a replacement for the 
existing welfare system, and that's what we discussed last uh, episode, which was about the hour long. Um, these are one-minute clips each, and I'm going to run through them and uh, give myself a little bit of a break, uh, allow myself to grab some water really quick. I am proposing a universal basic income that would replace the entire welfare system we have now. And one of the first questions that would come to anyone's mind is, can we really afford this? $10,000 a year for everybody age 21 and older until they die? And the surprising answer is, it would be several hundred million dollars cheaper than the system we have now. And guess what? By the year 2020, it will be on the order of $900 billion cheaper. By the year 2025, we're going to be looking at $1.5 to $2 trillion cheaper than the current system. The right question is not, can we afford a universal basic income? The right question is, how are we going to sustain the current system for the next decade? Something has to be done to deal with an oncoming fiscal crisis. A universal basic income is not only a better system for Americans, it's also a lot cheaper. The immediate effects of the UBI are twofold. The first is that involuntary poverty will be ended. By involuntary poverty, I mean people who are trying real hard, doing the best they can, but cannot make enough money to live a decent existence. That kind of poverty goes away with the passage of a universal basic income. A second thing that the UBI does is it utterly changes the incentives facing people. It completely changes the incentives that a woman faces in deciding whether to have a baby, for example. Other things such as retirement for the elderly, become much simpler with the universal basic income. Guess what? Social Security doesn't cover everybody. We have lots of elderly in poverty. That doesn't happen under a universal basic income. In that and many other ways, we are looking at a system in which problems that have been unsolvable by the welfare state are solved pretty much as soon as the bill is passed. The real case for universal basic income, in my view, is not financial, it is moral. To live a satisfying life, a person must spend that life doing important things, such as raising a family, holding a job that is satisfying and fulfilling, being a good member of one's community. For those roles to be satisfying, people have to have responsibility for what those institutions do have responsibility for the decisions they make. One of the things that the lucky people in society already have is a life in which they know they can take responsibility for their own actions. They can live the lives they see fit. What a universal basic income will do is make that same possibility for a satisfying life open to everyone. And that would be a fulfillment of the American dream that goes far beyond the usual notions of a nice house in the suburbs. Television is so glamorous. I'll, sorry, I shouldn't have died. 
One of the most persuasive arguments against a universal basic income is that people will stop working. They'll take the universal basic income, they'll pool it, and they will simply live an idle life. It's a serious issue, and I had to take that into account in the design of the program. And the solution that I came up with is pretty straightforward. As long as people have a job that pays less than $30,000 a year, they continue to get the full $10,000. Now, there is a certain tax that's levied on it after $30,000 a year, but at that point you have to ask yourself, are you going to quit work and exchange a $40,000 a year lifestyle for a $10,000 a year lifestyle? People to live satisfying lives need to be responsible for their own lives. There's much more to be said about the problem of work disincentives, but a program of a universal basic income can be structured so that people are lured into working until they can't afford to quit. Free trial memberships out. 
I never joined the shiz out. Fuck you think this is out? We been flying like a motherfucking fish though. General style half a dozen on the stick just so I can wet the appetite of shit. What you talking about? My AC never doing nothing blow fans. Walgreens bar shopping all the off brands. Boy go hard when collecting God Bimmer. Welcome back. Uh, about that guys. Wanted to uh, take a little break again and discuss this is a pop-up episode. So uh, for anybody listening today, it's kind of, you know, just came together last minute as a result of a report that I was reading and was discussing some of the regulatory costs. I thought it was appropriate. I don't know if we're going to have enough time in every episode to cover every single uh, topic. And I feel like, you know, sometimes I just gloss over something that needs to have a little bit more attention paid to. Um, with this report that I was reading uh, is really interesting, and I, I wanted to, to bring some of these numbers to, your, to, to everybody's attention. Um, you know, it's pretty insane when you got regulatory costs. This is hidden taxes uh, that are approaching 11% of uh, the gross domestic product or GDP or total economic output of this country. So, you know, it's something that uh, really does need to be considered uh, as a major issue uh, that needs to be reformed. It's, it's holding the economy back significantly. If we were, if, if that 11%, if that 11% growth were factored into the economy today, you know, what you're talking about is a labor force participation rate back up into the 90%, uh, you know, probably an unemployment rate of 6%, maybe a little bit higher because you'd have a boost in, in the uh, labor force participation, but you'd have a declining unemployment rate and you'd have rising wages at the same time. You'd have lots of competition for new jobs. Um, so the other, the, other, uh, uh, the other part of that equation, aside from getting the regulatory uh, landscape back into uh, a position that we can you know, manage, uh, being able to peel it back to where it's not taking up 11% of GDP at least, getting it to a point where we're, we're talking about maybe 1% or 2% of GDP, which is about what we need, considering the fact that 1% to 3% of uh, you know, people in professional roles are bad actors, that should probably be reflected in the size of the regulatory state and the regulatory cost. That's what's uh, you know, somewhat reasonable and affordable and should make sense to most people. And if we got it to a point that was like that we would we'd see a boom in the economy for no other reason just that you know from the perspective of getting back to a point where you know we accept free enterprise and we appreciate people that take the risk to go out and start a business and we're not going to consider them a criminal uh from the moment that they get started we're not going to say that they're doing something wrong just because they're taking a risk or that they, they may not have the experience of somebody who's running you know a major corporation in the same industry and you know how did they have the right to we got to get away from all of that and get back to a point where we appreciate people who take that risk, who go out and try to do it on their own and become an entrepreneur. Part of becoming an entrepreneur, especially if you're not one that's already made a lot of money, is being able to find capital, gaining access to capital. That's what our next episode is going to be all about. So I'd really like everybody to tune in. I think it's really important. I consider it 50% of the equation. And what are some of the barriers to access to capital currently? You know, we've talked a little bit in past episodes, and we touched a little bit on it here, uh, talking about Dodd-Frank, 
about financial regulations and the regulations, uh, particularly on banks and how difficult it is right now. Yeah, they're, they're answering to four or five different regulatory agencies, depending on their charter and depending on the number of different business models that they're pursuing. Um, they're, they're having to predictively wind down certain businesses that in the past were good profit centers for them as a result. Uh, there's all sorts of things that, and, and at the same time, you're seeing consolidation, consolidation, consolidation from banks that were willing to take a little bit more risk when it comes to business lending into banks that are taking far less risk when it comes to small business lending, and especially surrounding you know some startup business or pre-revenue businesses. So the, the, the way that you gain access to capital nowadays is venture capital, or, and, and what venture capital used to be called is really more of angel investors today. And, and the way you find angel investors is there's a number of different ways. You can try to scour for, for someone online, network, uh, go to you know, business networking events, try to uh, you know, get in at, at an angel investor network pitch. Uh, a lot of them have pitch nights, and you can go and participate in the pitch night. But you basically got to spend time trying to find somebody with money. You can't just walk, really walk into a bank anymore with a good idea and a good business plan and um, you know, proof that you're going to become profitable over time. You know, you got to find somebody. You got to find somebody with money. They've got to be willing to take the risk and put the money in, in into your business. And then once they put the money into your business, you're likely going to have to give up a big chunk of equity. Maybe they'd be willing to do it in a form of convertible debt, and you, you'll have a little bit of time to really grow the value before they get priced in. But it's going to be at a discount to the next round, which means that they're going to, you know, companies worth ten million dollars when you raise money the next time, they're going to get twenty percent, uh, you know, share. Their investment will be vested at, uh, you know, eight million dollars, and, and it might be twenty percent per year, you know. So there's a number of different ways that those deals can be structured, but that's basically what you have to do. You got to find a wealthy person or a group of wealthy people who are willing to invest in you. That's not easy to do. If you're not wealthy, that can take years to do. If you're not wealthy, I know from personal experience that that can take years to do. If you're not wealthy and it's very, very difficult. It's very, very difficult. We need to make it much, much easier. And one of the reasons why you have to find a wealthy person or a group of wealthy people is because there are literally rules that say, well, it's okay for you, no matter your income level or anything, to go and buy a dollar lottery ticket that you know you're going to lose money on for sure, uh, you know, and, and the odds on lottery are ridiculous, but you cannot go and put a dollar into a, a small business, you know, into equity or, or a bond for a small business unless you are a quote-unquote accredited investor. And what is accredited investor? It's somebody who makes over X amount of income or has over Y amount net worth. And both of those are, are amounts that the average person does not have. So if you're, the, if you're an average person who sees a good idea, maybe it's your neighbor, one of your neighbor's kids who's grown up, or maybe it's one of your kids. In the case of family, there's an exemption and there's some light rules around. Uh, but, you, you know, if, if you got previously related previous existing relationships you can be exempt from a credit but but even then um you know the culture is built around you know we don't really do that that's really risky so i i i you know i was curious i mean is it is it that that risky because i mean businesses can survive and pay back their debts uh, in a lot of in a lot of cases, or, or or at least should be able to in a lot of scenarios. I mean, it's not 
extremely, extremely difficult to do. And, and um, I was curious about this. So what I did was, uh, you know, I went and looked. I've got a whole, I've got a really good slideshow. You can look at the slideshow. It's already up on the page for episode 10. Uh, but I went and looked at the survival rate of businesses by, uh, by years, uh, by the number of years after start, starting. I've got a little, uh, you know, scatter plot chart, and it kind of shows from, you know, the first year through the 10th year. We had a little bit more data than that, but, but you know, this was a, a more complete data set. Uh, and and more recent as well. Uh, this is slide number 13 on episode four's slideshow. And basically what this shows is that, look, after year two, about 79% of businesses are still alive. To year three, about 67%. So this uh, notion, which we, we hear, it's a cliche that we hear a lot throughout our lifetimes that, um, you know, within three years, 90% of businesses or nine out of every 10 businesses go bankrupt. It's actually not true. Um, about one out of every three goes bankrupt. Two out of, out of every three are still alive after three years. Now, after four years, it goes down slightly under uh, 60%, just about 60%. Uh, after five years, it's just under uh, 55%, about 50, 53%. After six years, about 48%. After seven, about 44 After eight, about 41 After nine, about 38%. And by year 10, about 36% of the businesses um, are still alive. So, so essentially, after three years, you got one out of every three that's gone bankrupt. After 10 years, you got two out of every three that's gone bankrupt. So is it that risky? And, and you know, what we're not showing here in this slide, um, and I may add a slide trying to show this, is, is what the upside is. Not every business is a, a, a grand slam. Not every business is a grand slam, and, and you know you could still lose money as an investor through dilution and having restructurings and whatnot, but the business still be alive. And that is a case. I'm not going to deny that that is a case. But if businesses are generally surviving far longer than what we expect, should there be this much fear built around this idea of businesses going out of business really quickly? And, uh, you know, not being able to lend to businesses if you're a private individual uh, who's not necessarily an accredited investor, not really even having a market for it, not really having exchanges for it, uh, making it highly restrictive on banks and offering incentives to banks to only lend in certain ways to these small businesses, i.e. SBA loans that are guaranteed, 75% are guaranteed by the Small Business Administration of the government, Um, you know, and in some cases higher than 75%. Are guaranteed. So why would a bank lend to any other small business other than through a SBA loan? Um, so you've got misalignments of incentives. You've got a number of other issues on the banking side, and then uh, on the private individual side, you have literal laws that make it more difficult. The lower the amount of capital available to people, uh, the lower the amount of capital available to people uh, that are trying to start a business and restrict. Uh, mechanisms for delivering capital from an individual with capital to provide and a business with that needs capital to put to work, uh, you know, and, and then being able to come to a transaction that makes sense at a value that makes sense uh, to both of them. And to do this on a mass scale with thousands of people, as opposed to trying to find one or two or three wealthy individuals and have it set up in, a, in the, in the right way, with technology, you can do it really, really quickly and really, really easily, and you can be fully accountable, and you can have the bookkeeping and, 
and records keeping, and you could do base annual reports that provide enough information to shareholders. And most good business owners are going to do that anyways. Um, But the idea that we don't have this mechanism in place and that it's actually illegal to raise money from somebody who's not an accredited investor from the general public if you're not a publicly traded company and i.e. a large company because a lot of the exchanges have rules where you have to be over a certain size in order to list on those exchanges. Now, there's the -the over-the-counter exchanges that don't, but a lot of those are looked at very poorly uh, by mainstream America. And there's no mechanisms offered by the big retail brokers uh, for equity or debt crowdfunding for small businesses to be able to access those markets. And quite frankly, I, I, I don't blame them for it yet because the rules are not really clear on where that's going to go. You know, the Jobs Act tried to clear that up, and now you got the SEC trying to really write the rules, and it's not really much is changing. They kind of did, well, well if, you, if you're worth $50 million and want, want to raise capital from the general public and not go public, then you can kind of do that. But you got to be big already. I mean, $50 million is not a huge business, but that's not the size I'm talking about, okay? The size I'm talking about are startups to three or four million dollars, maybe five million dollars in revenue, or if it's a very low margin business, maybe two or three million to five million dollars in profits. That's the size business that I'm talking about that has difficulty gaining access to capital. And we need to figure out a way to match people who have capital to lend or invest with businesses that are of that size, that have capital, that, that, that have a need for capital to be able to put it to work and put it to work quickly so we'll hire people that have good business models that if they can scale them will become profitable and all they need is access to capital to get there. That's what the next show is going to be about. I hope you guys enjoyed this little pop-up show that I did tonight talking about the cost of the regulatory environment. Remember, it's about 11% of GDP. That's the hidden cost. That's the hidden cost. That affects people's wages. That affects the amount of money that you pay at stores for goods. That affects every aspect of your life. It affects the cost of the house you buy or that you, the home that you rent. Whatever the case is, whatever you're thinking about, why is this so difficult? This is a big reason why. These regulatory costs, $1.8 trillion in regulatory costs, the hidden regulatory costs, which are more than the federal tax base, excluding capital gains and some excise taxes and things like that. But if you were just to account for corporate and individual income taxes – the regulatory costs are bigger than the, that income tax base. That's insane. Those are hidden costs that we're all feeling right now. And we're wondering why. And you know, some people are saying it's Mexican immigration. Some people are saying it's free trade agreements. Some people are saying other outlandish things that have no basis in reality or, or, or tried and true economic theory. Um, we do need to simplify the tax code. Even if we leave rates the same, we got to simplify it. We got to flatten it. We got to flatten it for people. We got to make it a lot easier for them uh, to comply. It's got to be able to be filled out in, in a matter of a day. And same thing for small businesses and, and, and really for all businesses so that they can keep more of that money and they're not having to pay auditors and accountants to prepare it. And we've got to go to a system where we adopt a somewhat of a no harm, no foul rule for business owners, where so long as, you know, we got to get rid of all this idea that we got to regulate best practices, best practices regulate themselves. 
If you're not providing best practices as a business owner, you will have a competitor who will and will steal your market share, will steal your employees, and will put you out of business. That's what happens. That's how competition works. That's how the market works. So we've got to get rid of rules and regulations that serve no purpose other than to say, hey, we know better than you, and if you don't do it our way, we're going to impose fines on you. All those do is set up barriers to entry and really do disincentivize the wealthy people who would invest under the current system from investing and would disincentivize the non-wealthy people who they're just not able to invest in these companies from investing if they understood those situations as well because it's very risky. If your business could be put out of business by the government because you lost a sheet of paper or because you uh, you know had an, you know you happened to to run a factory and you know for you have to have a you know stop button for the assembly line but the assembly line is set up in a way to where it doesn't really work that way in your factory which is a real case um, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll post it on the website when we eventually uh, get the website up and going. Uh, but this was an actual case where essentially um, OSHA came in and said, you have to have this, this, and that. If they had actually understood the business circumstantially, not just broadly, these are the rules, these are the reg- regulations, you have to do this. They'd understand why, they, no, they really didn't need that. Um, And there's a lot of those cases all throughout every single industry, no matter what industry you're talking about, you have tons of regulatory costs that are related to things that don't matter at all, that barely ever happen. And if they do happen, they're more of a tragedy that wouldn't be prevented by that regulation. And that the reason that regulation exists is primarily because some expert who either worked for or used to work for a big major corporation walked into Uh, you know, congressional hearing and, you know, publicly gave guidance to the regulatory bureaucracy that was writing the rules that that, uh, Congress delegated the right to, to, you know, the right to write. Um, And uh, this expert is guiding them. This expert basically works for one of the big companies in that industry. That's how these things work. They don't come to small, you know, five-person shops, say, hey, how do we do this? No, they go to a quote-unquote expert from a major corporation, and that quote-unquote expert from a major corporation has their own interests, and they're going to guide what they want to guide. At the end of the day, you end up with massive regulatory costs that don't really solve the problems that people cried out for regulation to solve uh, because those problems are best solved by competition. And regulatory bureaucracies prevent competition, and by preventing competition, they prevent the end goal that they're stated to, uh, you know, that they've stated to try to achieve, which is to create more equality in these markets and more fairness in these markets and a better distributive share of whatever, um, and to have less uh, less negative incentives in the market for people to go out and and commit crimes, you know, financial crimes and to rip people off, to make it harder for people to do that. Well, the way you make it harder for people to do that is you have tons of competition. That's the way that you do that. And by having all of this regulatory cost, you reduce the competition and therefore reduce the amount of natural regulation that occurs from it. Well, everybody, I hope you enjoyed tonight's pop-up episode. Um, I'm going to call it a night for there. 
again, this is the Macro View. Follow us on Twitter at the Macro View. Uh, you can check out the slides that I was talking about here tonight if you're not listening to this on Blog Talk Radio on the episode page. On the episode page, you will see the slideshow there. But if you'd like to check out the slides one by one, um, you can also check that out on our Twitter page. When we get the website up, we'll also uh, have a uh, interactive slideshow from each episode that will go along with it. Um, so, I, again, glad that you guys came and uh, listened. Hope that you share this episode with other people. So a little, you know, supposed to be a 30-minute pop-up episode. Looks like we're getting close to an hour here. Um, but uh, I, think, I think that this is an important topic to cover. And on Saturday, we're going to go much, much deeper into the access to capital question. What is wrong? Why is it so hard, and how do we fix it? Are there some short-term fixes we can do to really kickstart it, to really give it a shock? And over the long term, you know, how do we make sure that we don't get here again where it's so difficult for people with small businesses with great ideas to be able to access capital and grow their business? In a world of technology, and, and, and you know, why is it necessary to have all these barriers to be able to gain access to that capital? So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about ways that we can fix that both short-term and long um, and I, I believe that there are ways that should be very easy, easy uh, from a political standpoint. It should be bipartisan. There's no reason uh, why these ideas shouldn't get passed other than just idiocracy existing uh, you know, in, in, on Capitol Hill. Um, but basically, uh, we're going to discuss why it is uh, that you may feel as though it's hard to find capital if you're a small business owner in any sector other than the food service industry, which even then it might be very difficult, uh, but any service other than sort of the fast food, you know, casual food service industry or a, uh, you know, mobile app, web-based app, web-based, you know, software as, as a service type of business. Unless you're in one of those two, it's very difficult to access capital right now. We're going to discuss why that is and how we fix it uh, in episode four of the Macro View on Saturday uh, scheduled for 9 p.m. I'm going to try to make it at 9 p.m. sharp. Um, but stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter at The Macro View. And I hope you all tune in for next episode on Saturday. I hope you all enjoyed this. We'll share it with your friends. We'll be available on Google Play uh, tomorrow on, on August 23rd. And uh, or possibly sooner. I know that they get, get it through pretty quick. And we should be hearing about uh, being available on iTunes here pretty soon as well. Um, so stay tuned on that. And then uh, I'll be uploading this on the pod being a little bit later tonight. Um, and it should be ready to go by early tomorrow morning. And then YouTube uh, the following, you know, tomorrow on the 23rd. So, you know, check it out in all those spots. Share it with your friends. Um, you know, make sure to tag us on, uh, on Twitter at the Macro View uh, and do a hashtag the Macro View. Um, and, uh, yeah, let us know what you think about our show. Uh, you know, I believe there's a comment section. If you're ever listening live, you can come in here and chat with me. Uh, there's a dial-in number that you could dial into, and I can answer your calls, and uh, we can have a little bit of chat, chat amongst ourselves. Um, but, yeah, really appreciate all my listeners. Hope that you guys will stay tuned and uh, that you'll get more people listening for us as well, and we can start to build up a little bit more of an informational army that uh, is actually working with the facts and not just working with cliches that we like to hear that, that, that we hear in the media and, and that make people's souls feel good, but actually discussing the facts of the matter 
uh, and trying to dig down and, and figure out solutions to these problems. Coming to you live from downtown L.A., this is Andrew Smith, and you've been listening to The Macro View. Have a wonderful night, everybody.